Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and I am joined today by Randy England. Randy England is a Catholic writer, former prosecutor, and criminal defense lawyer in central Missouri. He is a board member of the Freedom Center of Missouri and the author of Free is Beautiful, Why Catholics Should Be Libertarian, which is the topic of today's conversation. Randy, thanks for joining us. Hi, Doug. I'm really glad to be here. You sent me a copy of your book, and I and uh, when I... I told Norman Horn, who's president of LCI, I said, hey, Randy sent me his book we're going to talk about it on the podcast. And Norman said, oh, Randy's great. And I said, OK, great. And so I started to read your book sooner than, than you know, it was on my stack of things to read because I read things in a certain order. Uh, and so I just I just pretty much devoured your book. I loved it. Uh, and one of the things that you know you and I talked about before the show is that your book is kind of like why Catholics should be libertarian. I mean, that's in the subtitle. But before I have my Protestants tune out on this conversation, which I doubt they'll do because they like our show, uh, this isn't really a book for Catholics only. Like this is this is also a case for why Christians should be should be libertarian, right? That's true. That's true. The, uh, if as I wrote the book, as you know from reading it, there are many places in it where I'm making arguments why libertarianism is is Christian and uh, and why all Christians should be libertarians. Uh, I am Catholic, and I wanted to address that particular niche, which um, I think the Catholicism uh, addressing Catholics adds an extra layer and of of um, of authority, you might say, in that I go in and I talk about what the you know the early church fathers. Not that Protestants don't don't look at what they say too, but sure, right. we're really really into that, and uh, and also what the church you know teaches on it or what the popes have said on it. So I have that extra layer of argument, you might say, um, which I have to to address Catholics because Catholics will, if you say something, there's a certain interpretation about uh, what the Scripture says, and then they say, yeah, well, but Pope so and so in this encyclical on work says this. And so I had to address those things too, to really bring everything together. Mm -hmm. But I always start with the scripture because that's fundamental to Catholics and to all Christians. And, um, and so you can, you can read through the book and either read the stuff of what the Catholic authorities say on top of everything else, or you can just skip it. But you know that you, you, you read that you could vouch for that more than that I could probably have a better feel for it than I would. Well, being prepared, I mean, I, I grew up Protestant. In fact, I grew up anti-Catholic Protestant, and I wouldn't call myself an anti-Catholic by any stretch anymore. But uh, I I am often not interested in the Catholic argument. But as I'm reading your book, it's not like you've spent, you know, three pages at a time, you know, quoting the church fathers like at length or anything. I mean, these are definitely things that 
Protestants, I hope, would be interested in seeing that throughout history, throughout church history, Catholic popes and church fathers, et cetera, are saying very amenable things to what libertarianism uh, believes. Uh, well, and sure, so it's yeah. very interesting to me, even on that, even on those grounds. Well, the uh, and also when you're not quoting scripture, uh, there's very little even in Catholic teaching that is what you would call what we would call infallible teaching, like you must believe this. It's it's definitely true. Almost everything that every Catholic or the saints and fathers have ever said is just um, persuasive. I, I I don't offer it as as uh, as authority. I offer it as persuasion, and read it. And if it sounds good, and you say, "Well, boy, they said that well. That makes perfect sense." That's what most of it is about. Uh, so that I would quote anybody. I would I I quote. There are plenty of non Christians I that are in there. I quoted H. Uh, L. Mencken probably a time or two. He had some mm-hmm. wonderful things to say about the state. And um, so, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's very much very much readable uh, by a, a non-Catholic or even a non-Christian, I, uh, possibly, because I, I I try to cover since it's 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 ostensibly for Catholics. I try to first start out and say, you know, what is libertarianism and why is it important? And it, the arguments are not all just religious. Uh, they're logical or moral in a larger sense. So yeah, anybody can read it. And uh, if you're if you are a libertarian and have no use for um, no use at all for any religion, uh, but you had some Catholic friends you needed to convince, then you still need to read it to know what to say to them. Yeah, I agree. I mean the the book itself is a, a good, if you're already a Christian or Catholic libertarian, it's a good reminder of the solid foundations on which you believe in Christian or Catholic libertarianism. So yeah. Um, but you do also deal with the kind of things that people question, like, really? Like Catholic libertarian? I wouldn't put those together. Um, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the objections a little bit later. Uh, but one of the, one of the earlier quotes in the book that stood out to me. And, you know, I always have this like running thought in my mind right now, the left is sort of commandeering the conversation over economics and social justice and social sort sort of like how, how do we relate to one another as a country in the, in the United States? And there's a quote at the beginning of chapter three about the tension between a state that demands obedience from its subjects gets heightened Uh, when religious subjects claim an allegiance to a higher power. And that since the days of the apostles, that's sort of been a dilemma that all Christians face. And that isn't necessarily a libertarian statement, except that libertarianism, I think, is probably the only stream of political thought that recognizes that being a Christian means that you stand in tension with the state. Absolutely. And and I think that was the point that every every Christian – must admit that their faith puts them at variance with the state at times. I mean, you just always always are. Now, there is a, a huge amount, in particularly in the New Testament, where the um, the apostles and Jesus too, you know, take great pains, take great pains to not have Christians at conflict with the state. I mean, Jesus, he says things that make it very clear that state taxation is is questionable. At one point, he actually tells tells St. Peter that 
you don't have to, the taxes, you don't have to pay them, but go ahead and pay them because we don't want to cause trouble. It's sort of like, I came here to save mankind. I did not come here to lead a tax revolt. I didn't come here to free slaves, not not the kind of real slaves, like Roman slaves. I didn't come for any of those purposes. And so as much as possible, I want you guys to just do as I've taught you, spread the word and keep your head down. And so we're... That's, that's what we do, but we're still at odds with the state all the time. But we just have to choose where we're going to, where we're going to stand up and say uh, uh, we obey God rather than man. So, you know, a lot of people who are kind of anti-libertarian because they see that the state has some sort of role in society will quote things like Romans 13. Like they'll just kind of make it their be-all, end-all Nope, I can't be a libertarian. Romans 13. And, you know, obviously we've dealt with this on our podcast, but you, you devote a number of pages to it in your book. Do you uh, do you have any thoughts on, on Romans 13 to share with us? Well, Romans 13, man, when you read Romans 13, it's uh, it kind of seems a little, you know, devastating uh, it, when you don't, you know, look at it more closely in the whole whole context of things. And um, there's another one, too. I think it's First uh, uh, Peter 2 also has a uh, – those are probably the two most quoted ones to go after uh, people and say, you just do what the state says, All, almost taking you into some sort of divine right of kings thing. But uh, in Romans 13, the um, – that's where uh, Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And there's no authority from God except from God. So basically, you know, you got you got the German people and you got Hitler, but they have to bow down and do everything he says because there's no authority except from God. And obviously, obviously Hitler, uh, you know, God wanted Hitler there. And so do whatever he says. It's it's ridiculous from a Christian standpoint. And it seems like, well, I, I've listened to the broadcasts on on this podcast too about uh, Romans thirteen and that people kind of go in different directions. They're they're kind of the easy way out is is to say, oh, well, Romans thirteen doesn't mean state authorities. It means uh, it means the church leaders or something, and um, and that's I don't know if that's an easy way out or not. Uh, I tend to take the view that it, it's Romans 13 doesn't exactly mean what what we think it means or what some people think it means. Uh, and there is a, a tension. There's the word again. Tension between um, the things who um, if you make it too authoritative, then you have have the obvious thing, you know, do what is good and you'll receive uh, Stalin's approval, you know, for Stalin is God's right. servant for good. You have, have St. Paul saying that and you go, yeah, yeah, he didn't say that. There's, that's just not, that's not a possible interpretation of that. But if you do look at, um, at, uh, you know, the idea that all it, authority is instituted by God. Well, yeah, all authority is instituted by God. Satan himself was instituted by God in that God instituted everything 
there is, everything that happens. But none of that means that he um, he approves of it. Uh, and none of it means that uh, that you have to go along with with evil things because it was, uh, you know, started by some state authority. And so Romans 13, I think, starts to get, you know, when you understand that it isn't taken uh, straight out um, for what it seems to say, then um, you also you just begin to question so much about it. Uh, I had an example in my book about uh, here's St. Paul saying, you know, obey the state, obey the state and all that. And yet uh, we had the situation where uh, where he seems to be poking fun at the emperor Nero. And when St. Paul says, uh, give honor to whom honor is due, uh, that's, what does it mean to give honor where honor is due? And I've, you know, I, I used to be a lawyer and <laughs> I, I've seen judges slap a lawyer down who got up and said, judge, with all due respect, see, no judge is stupid enough to think that 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 is a respectful address to them because nobody's saying how much respect is due. So to say that is like, judge, you're an idiot. And for St. Paul to say, give, give, t- pay taxes with, when taxes are due or give honor when honor is due and respect or respect is due, uh, that just, uh, that doesn't answer the question of what honor is due, what respect is due and what taxes are due. And um, so St. Paul, he says he has these qualifiers in there and you go, wait a minute, those things, those things actually do mean something. And if they mean something, you know, what do they mean? And uh, you have the situation with the, um, it was the Emperor Nero, who was a bad guy. He lived uh, in the, uh, in the 60s AD. Uh, At the time, um, uh, St. Paul was uh, uh, in Rome. And the Emperor Nero, who fancied himself a, uh, a uh, musician and an athlete and, and that sort of thing. He went to Greece because they were having the Olympic Games. And uh, he did a concert tour of Greece where he went and sang and everyone uh, loved it, uh, apparently. I don't know. But he also went and competed in the Olympic Games. And, and he rode in the, uh, the four-horse uh, chariot race. And he had... Lots more horses than that, but they let him go ahead and do it because he was the emperor. And they started the race, and they started to go around, and he he falls out of his chariot. So they stop the race, and they dust the emperor off, put him back in his chariot, and start going around again. He gets started. He falls out again. And he's kind of busted up at this point. He can't even finish the race. So they called off the race, declared him to be the winner, gave him the crown and the laurels and all of that thing. And... uh the word, of course, gets around. I mean, everyone applauded the emperor when he was there. I mean, when it was, uh, you know, there in the stadium. But um, you have this letter now that St. Paul writes. It's thought that he was beheaded in Rome around, I don't know, I think it was uh, it was right after Nero was in the Olympic Games, about 66, 67 A.D., and uh, 66 was when he was in the games. And um, Paul writes uh, to Timothy. Paul is about to be beheaded. 
He's writing from his prison cell, a second letter to Timothy, and says an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And uh, this seems like coming immediately after, maybe within within months of Nero coming home from Greece in complete disgrace. I mean, the laughingstock of the empire for his race where he was crowned, uh, you know, the winner, even though he couldn't finish the race and even though he cheated. Um, you know, Paul says, I finished the race. And, but Nero didn't finish, and Paul insisted that you have to compete according to the rules, and Nero cheated. And Paul looked forward to getting his crown of righteousness, and of course Nero was a court ordered a crown, but he was, you know, mocked and embarrassed, not, not to his face, but everywhere else in the empire. It, it seemed to me when I, I read this, this, you know, together, that St. Paul was being a little disrespectful to the emperor. I mean, he made this a really biting joke at Nero's expense, put it in a letter to Timothy. And uh, now whether he, whether that had anything to do with losing his head, you know, later that year, who knows? Uh, But, and whether he knew it would become public, uh, who knows that? Although it certainly did become public. Everybody on earth knows about it. But, uh, but still, if Nero was due respect just for being the emperor, as Romans 13, you know, is read, then St. Paul failed to follow his own rule. And so when you're thinking about what we're supposed to do under Romans 13, are we to consider any duty at all to, the, to a government or a ruler, you need to think about the fact that, uh, or at least not quote St. Paul about you owe this respect and all of this, because he didn't really feel that way. Um, it makes you wonder if some of these things were written down for consumption by the government. And it was kind of like when Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Um, the Romans, they thought Jesus was saying, pay your taxes. And uh, Jesus was saying that because he knew that his listeners, the people who were supposed to get in, be getting the message from him, they knew what he was saying. They knew that what he was really saying was that, well, the emperor's got nothing. God has everything. And so I guess nothing is owed. And you could interpret it one way, and the Romans interpreted it one way, and and the Jews interpreted it the other way. And... Um, there's there's this uh, subtext all through the New Testament and in uh, in all sorts of things. Uh, you, you run into the same thing with the issue of uh, slavery. Uh, St. Paul and St. Peter both say um, slaves obey your masters. And uh, that's, you know, that's really kind of problematic, you know, for people to read today. I mean, it wouldn't have been 200 years ago because back, you know, there was still slavery. But there are there's cracks in that, though, even at the very beginning. They, they seem to be saying, obey your masters and, and given the idea that maybe slavery is OK. But of course, it's not OK. I mean, we know it was, isn't OK now. But even back then, 
who could think of the message of Jesus and think that one man could own another man? It, I mean, the, the tension there is just almost unbearable. And But if you read closely, uh, St. Peter writes uh, when he's talking about, I mean, he says slaves will pay your masters, but then he goes on and writes about a slave and saying he's a slave and suffers in that, and he says he suffers unjustly. Well, right there, he's saying slavery's wrong, that this person is being enslaved and it's unjust, and God will reward you for suffering, but then he says suffering unjustly, which means slavery is wrong. Now, you can't just come out and say slavery is wrong in the first century A.D., and, uh, and so nowhere in the Gospels do you see that. But uh, there's something there, and it just took us almost 2,000 years to figure out that that was really evil. You know, one of the things that is in discussion of Romans 13 when you talk to people on the left is this concept. They say things like, you know, well, you have to read it in the light of Romans 12, uh, which which is totally true, of course. It wasn't like thir- Romans 13 was the start of a brand new theme or anything like that. But, yeah. th- but they bring up things like uh, that they'll refer to the, you know, God has instituted authority for our good. And so that kind of, you know, makes them, makes people on the left be like, well, see, this is what government is for. It's for the common good. And one of the, I, I have to say, and not to go back to the Protestant Catholic thing, like I was informed a lot about the way Catholics saw the world just in general. And honestly, given the current Pope, uh, I would have never thought that there's so much Catholic doctrine that matched up with libertarianism until <laughs> until reading your book. Because, uh, you know, you get this impression that it's all about, you know, feeling good social justice stuff. Uh, but um, there there are three sort of essentials from the, the Catholic catechism uh, regarding the common good. Oh, yeah, yeah. The people like to throw around the common good. They don't have a clue as to what it means. It's whatever makes them feel good, Randy. Yeah. Well, I, don't, I, I totally, and and as a, as a Catholic, I... I I, I don't think it's the infallible teaching. It's one of those things that we're expected to believe that that we should act for the common good. And personally, I think everyone should act for the common good. But the, in in the Catholic belief, the common good, the definition of the common good, is almost exclusively directed toward uh, those set of conditions that we live under that create the most likelihood for human flourishing and um, and for a, a, a good life, the spread of the faith, to exercise your, your faith. And the main quality that a society needs to promote the common good is, and prosperity included in that, uh, prosperity in both material and spiritual goods, you might say, the main quality is peace and security. The common good is almost exclusively those things. And, um, and real justice, you know, like people shouldn't be able to, to steal or cheat, rob, and things like that. Uh, it's not about taking things from one person and giving them to another. And the thing that, that kills me, the, the common good, another phrase that's just like the common good, I think, is what's called the general welfare. The words general and common suggest everybody. Uh, so if uh, it would be to the common good 
to keep the peace in your town. And it would be to the common good to, to have a, um, a justice system that could arbitrate disputes without people having to kill one another. And so however you had a, a system of courts or common good, I mean, system of courts or arbitration to settle disputes, that would be for the common good. But if you, and that would be for everybody, that would benefit every single person who uh, had it, was in a dispute or as far as it helped the, the peace of the community. Well, peace is, is, is its own reward. Uh, everybody wants, wants, uh, the conditions in society to be peaceful and not, not crazy or dangerous and that sort of thing. But if you talk about the proposition of here's a guy over here who has some things and here's somebody over here who doesn't have enough, let's use violence. Let's use the state to take away from the guy who has enough and give it to the guy over here. Well, aside from whether that's a good idea or not, uh, what it definitely is not is for the common good, because that is for the particular good of a, of a, a, a person. So any time you go to enact a law, the legislature sh- should be, if they're interested in the common good, is saying, is this for everybody or is this for this guy over here or is this for, for our buddies over here, you know, who give us contributions mm-hmm. every four years? Uh that's that's the common good. If if this thing that you're doing is there to help somebody other than everybody, then it's not the common good. And that's a pretty darn simplified analysis, but it is it is that. And almost everything that the legislature does, except uh, you know laws that have to you know laws that say murder is a crime. Yeah, that. That's for the common good and theft. In other words, <laughs> if you stay with the crimes that have victims, which is a you know a central thing of libertarianism, uh, you're pretty much promoting the general welfare. But most of what these guys do promotes somebody's particular welfare and relies on them creating a victim to help the person that whose particular welfare they're interested in. Uh, they're completely different things, and the Catholic definition of the of the common good fits right in with the common sense definition of common good. So, I, I guess my inner critic of libertarianism and the idea of the common good would bring up things like public goods. In that, you know, like for instance, uh, compulsory public schooling. Uh, just call it that. We can bring out our libertarian names for it, like government school or whatever. But uh, public schooling. Uh, is commonly referred uh, it's commonly justified on by saying okay well people who could could otherwise afford to send their kids to school if it were on the market should be taxed in order that everyone should be uh, everyone's children I should say should be allowed to go to school and that just happens to include those who can't afford it and so by doing that you are creating a common good scenario because now not only are the wealthy able to be or the better off should I should say are able to uh, educate their kids Anybody can educate their kids, and we all benefit from, you know, a more educated society. Okay, well, you have you have a, a, a let's a, a, we want to assume for a moment that the public schools are actually doing good. 
I mean, if you want to bring it under the umbrella of common good, you need to be good first. But let's just assume that that uh, this is a common good, like everyone would be educated, just like like. Uh, uh, well, I don't know. It's a, if it's a common good, that's fine, and I, I could accept that something could be a common good, but you still have a problem from a libertarian standpoint, and I think from a Christian morality standpoint, of that um, you're doing good, uh, you have a good goal, but you have evil means, because you still have to extort the money from people. You have to you have to put a gun. To every homeowner's head, at least that's the way it is in in most places in the United States, mm-hmm. you put a gun to their head and say, you're going to lose your home unless you give us $2,000, $3,000 this year uh, to support the public schools. And so now you're doing, you know, what St. Paul condemned of shall we do evil that good may result. Uh, and the state says, yes, you definitely need to do the evil. Or they're going to do the evil, or you know, I guess from a societal standpoint, it's we that do the evil because we're the ones that allow it or even mandate it. We go to the polls. I say we lightly. Sure. Um, uh, go to the polls and elect. Uh, we elect uh, legislators who will put these taxes on us. We elect sheriffs to take our homes from us if we don't pay, and uh, so we do all this evil. So that something supposedly good, like educating children, uh, will occur. So I still don't think we get over the hump. I mean, common good is common good is mostly stays with the idea of well, what are you going to do with the money after you stole it? I mean, it's bad enough to steal money, and uh, you know it sticks in my craw. You know, a whole lot more that my money is used to kill a child in Yemen than it is to semi-educate one in Missouri. You know, the, the second one doesn't cause me to lose lose sleep right? Uh, like the first one. So there is a difference there in that the one could be considered good. I don't know how on earth, you know, the the uh, most of the things that we do overseas could be considered good from any standpoint. Um but I don't I, – I just think that if – you need to have both sides of the equation to be good, to be morally permissible for a Christian. Yeah. Well, you know, you you have this this tenor in your book of just kind of informing and being, you know, kind of uh, – I don't know what the word is, but it's sort of like – you know, it's just a standard book like, hey, you know, this is this is what we believe. This is why it's you know, this is why Catholic and Christian doctrine comports with libertarianism. And you have this section in the book, which is, is like where you go off tone a little bit. And you were talking about existing uh, the duty to governments. And I'm just going to quote this because this is this is very uh, interesting to me. We understand why the early Christians were forced to labor under the unjust government of the Roman Empire. Christians in other times and places have been required to do the same. But in our time, to acquiesce in such tyranny while being able to freely oppose it is lazy and unworthy of a Christian. <laughs> Those are pretty strong words. Oh, well, the, the whole point I, I is affirm that, what you're saying, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what I was thinking of, of course, you're going back to the Old Testament. I mean, not the Old Testament, the New Testament, where we're cautioned. We're cautioned in many places. We're cautioned by Jesus when, uh, when uh, he says— um, 
you know, they, we frequently talk when we talk about, you know, should you pay taxes and that you immediately run to the, uh, the, uh, render to Caesar verse, right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, when they said, should you pay the tax? And he says, you know, render to God, the things that are God's. And, but the, uh, but that one is very enigmatic. And I, like we were saying earlier, or I was saying earlier, uh, his meaning was taken differently by, by the Jews, uh, and than it was by the Romans. And, and one way you can tell that, that the Romans didn't take any offense. They thought when he said render to Caesar, he was saying pay your taxes, is because this event seems to have taken place right at the beginning of, of, of the week that Jesus was crucified. And they're trying to trap him, of course. And then later, later on, Jesus is standing before Pilate and the the uh, you know the the high priest is trying to get him convicted and and crucified, and uh, they have to they have to tell Pilate that uh, he was um, th th their interpretation was that Jesus was saying don't pay your taxes, and they felt like the Romans weren't getting it. The Romans weren't getting it, so they had to tell Pilate that Jesus was teaching people not to pay their taxes. Hmm. Uh, so it, anyway, that it's, but it is, it's ambiguous. No matter how you look at it, it's like, well, render to God the things that are God's and Caesar to Caesar. Well, okay, but then he didn't stop and say whose was whose. Right. But the one that, the instance when he makes it far more clear what's, what's in his mind and how he views the taxes is when the, um, when the, uh, some of the teachers, they came, they came and spoke to Peter and said, uh, said, is it true that your, your, um, your master doesn't pay the temple tax? And, and Peter, I, I don't know what he, if he knew or had thought about it, but he said, oh yeah, yeah, he does. And, uh, and then later when Jesus is alone with Peter, Jesus, you know, takes him aside and says, uh, you know, ask, ask him about it. And, and um, Jesus says, look, and he tells him this, this parable about how the, the sons of the king don't have to pay taxes. And, um, you know, giving this, the rationale, he said, well, what about all the other people? They, and Peter says, yeah, they have to pay. And Jesus says, but the sons don't pay. You know, like we're, you're the sons, you know. And then Jesus said, but listen, we don't want to give any offense to these guys. So go and, you know, throw your line in the, in the sea of Galilee or wherever it was. Uh, and that you'll catch a fish and in the fish's mouth, there'll be one shekel, which is, uh, the, I think the tax was a half shekel, uh, go and pay the tax for you and me. And, but he said, do it just so you don't give them offense. And that same, that same rationale you see, all through the New Testament, you know, St. Paul's letters is always telling people, keep your head down, you know, obey them as, as you can. You should obey them as, as, as much as you can. Only when they tell you to do things that you know are wrong, then you have to step back. You know, they're always, um, you know, taking that tack. And uh, so a lot of evils, you know, we're, we're in society and they couldn't even touch them. Like slavery was a good one. Uh, I, in my book, I, I talked about, you know, the whole, the history of slavery, a very abbreviated one about how it took so long for Western civilization to abolish slavery. 
And uh, you had other things that were, were, you know, terrible things that were allowed and even seemingly approved by Christian society through the ages, like torturing people. And another thing that has only recently become uh, acceptable is um, religious freedom. I mean, 500 years ago, you know, Catholics and Protestants thought they had to kill each other for some reason. They just had to. They couldn't possibly live in the same country together. And uh, somehow we got past that. And not that there's a relativism afoot in that, you know, each side is saying, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe. It matters what you believe, but they just figured out that you don't actually have to kill each other. And um, so we came forward in time. And, of course, when St. Paul wrote and when Jesus was writing, there was an emperor, an absolute dictatorship practically. And uh, as time went forward, the first big thing that happened, uh, you know, around, uh, you know, in, in the 300s was that Christianity became legal. And so all of this stuff about how much you need to keep your head down, be quiet and not rock the boat and don't say anything bad about this or that started to go away to some extent. You know, Christians... Uh, before then, if they stuck the head down, they're liable to get it cut off. And now Christianity's legal. Now, you still had an emperor, but you could say things. And so early Christian fathers uh, could say things about slavery. And I think it was Gregory of Nyssa who actually just excoriated the whole Christian society. He was about the only one back around the year 400 or so, in the th- who about the only one at that time that just talked about how horrible slavery was and who do you think you are, you know, enslaving another human being. But it wasn't going to end then, but he didn't lose his head over that. But then you move on ahead, and now we get into more modern times. And uh, in 1776, the Declaration of Independence, you've got a, a democratic republic, and now you're not you can say what you want. And so getting back to your question at the very beginning of this this piece, Christians, when you can speak up and not get your head cut off, then you you better do it. And if you don't, I believe the third you thought was infl- the word I used inflammatory was that they're, it's lazy of them and unworthy, unworthy of them. Yeah. To keep their head down still, uh, you know, and I don't know if they justify it by by quoting St. Paul, but St. Paul and Jesus both were were first and foremost, you know, talking about the society they were in. I mean, Jesus, he was actually he I mean, he had a plan for his his own ministry and he wasn't going to let anything diminish it. Uh, you know, or end it before he was darn ready. It was, it's, he, he was going to do his plan. It was, uh, you know, he, he said, you know, go ahead and pay the tax. You know, the, we're not going to fight about this. Not, not here, not now anyway. Or, or the time when, 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 when they tried to, when he was at his own synagogue and he kind of declared that he, that, uh, Isaiah was fulfilled in their hearing and they tried to kill him there and he just kind of walked on through and got away from him. He, he wasn't going to let anything happen to him, uh, before he was ready. And, and the early Christians were not supposed to do or say anything that would 
jeopardize the mission of spreading the, the Christian gospel. But when it becomes fine to do that, then it becomes lazy and unworthy not to. At least that's my feeling. I wish we could talk for another hour about all the topics in your book. Um, and so this is actually the second edition, right? You had it, you you released it back in 2012 and it's now 2019 and, and now it's revised and updated. Uh, give us a little uh, insight into like the two halves of your book because it's kind of divided into two parts and then where can people buy the book? Okay, well, it isn't it is in two parts. The The first part of it is the, I guess, the moral side of it. Uh, the philosophers, you know, libertarian philosophers would call that the deontological side or the, uh, the rights or moral view of, uh, of libertarianism. In other words, why you morally cannot do this to other people. And I think in the middle, I have a little introduction to the second part, which sort of introduces a utilitarian uh, view of it. So like aside from whether it's morally right to leave other people alone to live their own lives, whether that's morally right or wrong, here's all the reasons that, not all the reasons, here are some examples of why the whole human race would be better off if we were free and how there would be, the poor would be better taken care of and, and uh, all sorts of things that are done heavy handedly by government would be done so much more, um, well, gently, of course, if it was done, uh, you know, under a, a free will scheme where people could work things out, a free market scheme, uh, how things work out better, how minimum wages can hurt people instead of just help them. And, uh, you know, say and uh, one thing I take on is occupational licensing and how much damage that causes to have the government decide who can work a job and who can't. And um, and so you have the two halves of the book. First happened. First half saying you really you really have got to be a libertarian because it's the only moral moral position. And the second one is you really ought to be because it's the best position. Now, and that's probably the the thing. I have a little section in the middle too that uh, during the what six seven six years between the first version and the second one, you know, I've had a few few debates and things like that uh, where I learned what a lot of the objections were that would be coming to uh, uh, the idea of a Christian or Catholic libertarian. So I had a chapter on the objections uh, from from that standpoint. And uh, the last thing that I, 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 I kind of changed between the two books, I added it, the, the second, the revised version is about 60% longer. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but um, I, I, I accept the idea that, you know, the individualism of libertarianism is uh, it, it, it's, 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 it's right to say, leave me alone. You know, I have the right to do, you know, what I want to do if I'm not hurting anybody else. Um, but it's also kind of ugly, uh, you know, when that 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 attitude and unbecoming of a Christian that I think. And so, um, you know, I thought, you know, what's the, the, the way to look at this? And I really think that the way that we see it, that we should see it is more about our duty to our, our fellow man. 
and what need what we owe to him because if we have a a god-given dignity that says uh leave me alone to run my life as i see fit then um then we have equally so we have a duty to our neighbor to um to not do you know to not to let him live his life in that way and that seems to me a much more christian emphasis you know to do that i mean what's the the de- don't tread on me is the is the slogan and on the front of my book i put a i i use that the gadsden flag snake and uh put that at the don't tread on me under it but i covered up the on me and put a little sticky note on there that says don't tread on your neighbor um because i think that should be our our emphasis and um and also it's a that's a practical thing because um you know, you can't, you don't have any control over how people treat you. You know, I mean, what can I do to make force people to, to respect me? And I'm thinking nothing. I can't, I can't make them treat me good, but what I can do is I can treat my neighbor good. And, um, that's totally within my power. And so that I think is the, that's the duty of, of a Christian to, uh, just decide that, even if we have to live, uh, you know, under the, uh, you know, the, the force of the state, we should do, we should do nothing and try to unreal the, the fact that our neighbor is also doing that. And we don't want to put any of that on him. We, we got to step back, not be, not be the busybody. just let them be free. And if everybody did that, then, uh, even the individualist, ones that, uh, you know, kind of take the more selfish tack, they would be free too. So the book is Free is Beautiful, Why Catholics Should Be Libertarian by Randy England. And Randy, uh, thank you so much for being part of our podcast. Thank you, Doug. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group. You are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Music